How's everybody doing out there? Podcast World, the Foul Life Podcast is back at you. Duck Dog Series, fueled by the one and only Yukonuba. You know exactly how we feel here about Yukonuba and the performance and the better lives all of our pets and sporting dogs and duck dogs are living. Not just us, but Brad Arrington at Mossy Pond and Andrew Skaluzazak up in Minnesota at Wild Acres. So many of our friends and family have switched over. The diet is amazing and the results speak for themselves. We're also excited for some stuff that's getting ready to pop up in the market pretty soon. We don't have a lot of details on it yet but i know it's coming so be prepared for some announcements and product launches by the team over at yukonuba today we're humbled to be joined by mr joe spoo he is uh, is for lack of better terms joe is it a veterinarian are you a, a veterinarian you're a sports medicine specialist in the veterinarian sector correct yep so um a practicing veterinarian who specialized in, in sports medicine and rehabilitation. And then my personal area of focus for my entire career has been hunting dogs. And hunting dogs as when you start talking about sports medicine, would it be everything from physical therapy and the medicine that goes into treating injury, muscle pain, bones, things that you might break being an athlete? Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's part of it. And so it's, it's everything though. So nutrition is a huge part of it. Um, I, I personally used to, and and I'm way out of shape now, but used to do marathons, triathlons and, and, you know, the tweaking of nutrition and and periodization of training and all of that we're trying to apply in, in the canine world as well. So it's, it's, I, I say that I take a cradle to grave approach to the sporting dog. So whether that's genetic counseling before breeding takes place all the way to keeping that geriatric dog out in the field and everything that happens in between. So if, if I can't do it or, or help the dog say like a surgery, I'm going to get you in the hands of the best person possible to keep that dog out in the field. So it's, it's basically every aspect of a hunting dog's life is what I deal with. And are you a private or are you an actual full-time employee of Royal Canine and Yukonuba now? Oh, I, I own my own practice. So uh, my wife and I have a specialty practice in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, we have six veterinarians. Uh, she's also a board certified specialist in, in a different specialty. Uh, and then we have four other veterinarians that work with us as well. Uh, we're the only specialty practice in kind of a tri-state area here. And so I, I do practice full time and then have a consulting business as well um, that predominantly you know, is in the sporting dog industry. So before COVID and I walked into your office and I know that your, your temperatures could be a little bit different. I've actually seen coffee, hot coffee thrown up in the air in Sioux Falls during the winter and have it crystallized before it hits the ground. I know how cold it can get there. I also know how hot it can get here where I'm at right now in the Tahoe, Reno, Tahoe area, West United States. It's getting to about 98 to hundred, 103 where I'm going this weekend in Chico, California, for a sporting clay event, um, for charity, it's going to be 106 to 113 degrees Fahrenheit. So crazy temperatures this week out here, but we all have duck dogs that we're getting ready for this upcoming season. So I walk into the Spoo clinic and I say, Joe, or your wife's there. And I say, Mrs. Spoo, can you help me out? How much should I feed a high powered lab right now? Um, does it change when you know it's going to be this hot outside? And also, Joe, go into the hydration part of it. Do you feed with water this time of year if you don't already? Um, and maybe maybe you quit in the fall when the temperatures go down. But do you feed with water with a wet food, you know, putting water on, t- uh, on the Yukonuba? How often should you feed during the day? How many cups? I know it all depends on the species, but let's say that I have a black lab that's 65 pounds, very active and very good shape. Um, when should I feed? How many times a day? How much? All of that good stuff. Sure. So I think it's one of the most confusing things that we deal with because everybody wants that cookie cutter answer and they want it to be black and white and and it's not. And the the more premium your food is and the more active or variable the activity is of your dog, the different that answer is going to be. And so it really is a feed to the individual dog sort of thing. And so, you know, I think a a couple of things, one is defining what active is and, you know, it's, you have some of these field trial dogs that, um, we look at as athletes and active dogs, but at the end of the day during training, a lot of those dogs are maybe getting off the truck for 10 minutes of marks in the morning and maybe a blind or two in the afternoon versus you'll have some pet dogs that, you know, are crazy Frisbee dogs in the backyard. So it's quantifying that activity is a big thing. Um, 
and, and to determine, you know, what energy level in what product and where you need to be. And so that's part of it. The other is your dog's activity level throughout the year. And so I think, you know, this is the time of year where we get guys coming in before hunting season. And, and there's times I'm shocked when they say, oh, hey, we, we hunt all year long and the dog's 20 pounds overweight because we have been hot all summer and that dog hasn't been worked, has sat on the couch, but has been fed the same amount. And so it's important that that, that feeding amount fluctuates throughout the year. And so if the dog's real active, we're going to need more. As that activity lessens, we're going to need less. And so feeding the individual dogs is, is important. Making sure that you're able to see the last couple of ribs on that 65-pound black lab. Um, even seeing the tops of the hips isn't a bad thing as long as they're well-muscled in the back and they're not getting dippy in the back. And so if those hips start getting a little bit more prominent, we need to up the, the feed. If the ribs start going away, we need to decrease the feed. As far as feeding with water, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't. Uh, the times that I'll feed with water is like I, I have uh, English setters that are picky, especially when you're working them. And so sometimes to bait the food a little bit, I might mix a little canned food with water. But as a preventative, trying to get a dog hydrated, I don't typically feed with water. Um, from a performance standpoint, depending upon how hard you're working. And, and so my dogs live in the house. They sleep in the bed with us. It's I'm one of those guys that I don't have kennels. And so I kind of shift on this a little bit, but from a scientific standpoint, if we were to feed an active dog, they should be fed once a day at the end of activity. So dogs perform better on a fast. And so, you know, if you're working your dog, like during duck season and you're up, you know, before sunrise and you're hunting until midday, I'd feed that dog once a day. When you get back to the, the motel or back to your house, everybody's calmed down feed that dog because there's a window of opportunity to repair that, that damage that was done, to rebuild the muscles, to replenish the, the sugar sources, and then fast them and, and don't feed them that morning. Now, in the real world that I live in, and my dog's living in the house, during the off-season, I feed those dogs twice a day. And if I didn't, there'd, there'd be a mutiny at my house. Like When I get up after I've had my second cup of coffee, the dogs start raising cane and they want to be fed. Same thing, we get home from supper, we eat supper, the dogs want to be fed. And so this time of year when I'm not working them, I feed them twice a day. But during hunting season, when, when I'm hunting multiple days in a row, they get fed once a day in the evenings. And, and I think the big point as far as quantity is it really should fluctuate throughout the year. And sometimes throughout the week, you know, if you hunt hard on the weekends and the dog's pretty chill during the week, more food on the weekends, less food during the week. You brought up, <clears throat> you brought up the word fast. If you're a human being and you're fasting, let's say I do, I do six days a week of intermittent fasting from 8 p.m. to 12 noon. On three of those days during the fast, Chospu, I am doing very in, intense working out, whether it's cardio, <clears throat> whether it's weight training, whether it's interval training. I'm doing something where I'm pushing my heart rate pretty good, burning a lot of calories. I feel like I'm more hungry. I feel like I'm ready to perform better, like you said. But in the, in, the, in the realistic sense of it, it seems like you would want to put some calories in your body before you go do a crazy workout. Maybe, maybe a protein shake, maybe some BCAAs, maybe that's after, but maybe something that you know, you're not going to damage a muscle or you're not going to feel you know, defeated or out of gas halfway through your workout. Why do you say something like that, that they perform better on a fast? Because dogs, wouldn't their, is their attention span better when they're hungry? Or would it be harder to get their attention when they're starving because they haven't got that meal? Yeah, so it, 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 I would say it's none of the above, so to speak. So some of it is, it, it's, you know, you can't think of it a one-to-one -one relationship that they're going to be like us. And so, you know, you start talking about a crazy workout or you're going to go run a marathon, you'd need to carb load because of metabolically what you're burning. And so these dogs, especially the hunting dogs, are going to preferentially use fat as their, as their, their energy source. And so that's going to be stored fat, not necessarily the dietary stuff. And so while they do need the sugar for brain function and things like that, it's, it's, they're not using the carbohydrates and the sugars as readily as we would at the start of activity. And so the other big portion of it is that if we think about, you know, what we used to think of as stress diarrhea with hunting dogs, a lot of that was mechanical diarrhea because we'd feed them in the morning and we'd fill their stomach up. They'd have food throughout their digestive tract. And then we have them out there running around and that food and the feces and the digesta is all bouncing around causing irritation versus once you, if you take your dog out hunting, what's one of the first things they do when they get out of the truck? They defecate. And so now we have an empty colon. And if we didn't feed them, 
we don't have a bunch of stuff bouncing around and we're not having that mechanical damage to the intestinal tract. And then we feed them at the end of the hunt to repair that damage. And so it's not, it's not that we're trying to make them hungry. It's not that we're, we're trying to starve them. It's that when we look at them as a performance machine, how they operate and how they're fueled and, and their needs are different than ours. And so it's, it's what we preferentially use versus what they preferentially use. It, it's, it's trying to not, you know, humanize them too much as to their energy needs during a workout. You know, they're not going out there and, and, you know, doing a bunch of burpees and then hitting the treadmill. And then, you know, it's, it's oftentimes interval work and, and even my setters, it's, it's more of a methodical continuous work as opposed to burning through a whole bunch of carbohydrates. So would, would weather dependent, are you giving them treats throughout an actual hunt or a workout? If it's a little bit colder, if they're, if you're, if your dogs are on a pheasant hunt in South Dakota and they're pointing like crazy, do you give them some kibble? Should a duck dog have some protein or sugar or honey in the blind waiting on them? If there's icy conditions and lower temperatures. So not typical. And so where I would say that, that, that I do would be, um, some of the pointing dogs that are really lean, we can have hypoglycemia or low blood sugar issues. And so, um, typically like with, with all of my English setters over the years have had a certain degree of it. So with those dogs, I'll sometimes supplement with a simple sugar in the field. And, and I've used every performance product that's ever been on the market. And, and I start it with, and I'm back to using just simple dextrose, which is a, a basically it's an IV sugar solution, but I'm giving it orally. Um, most retrievers I don't feel do need that. I think it, it, what we find is that when you feed a dog while they're active, especially if you feed them stuff that contains protein and fat and things like that. So the things that, that, you, you know, so kibble, if we gave that to them while they're performing or at the start of performance, the other thing that's going to happen is that that we're going to have blood supply go to the digestive tract to try to break some of that stuff down when where we want it is out in the muscles and where things are performing. And so with with a performance dog, the only thing that I'd supplement would be a sugar-based supplement if, if we start having some hypoglycemia. And typically that's only going to be in your endurance dog. So like your pointing dogs. I've never in a, a duck hunting situation had a, a retriever have hypoglycemia issues. I have had some labs that have it out pheasant hunting uh, where they're just usually that crazy young dog that loses its mind and, you know, it's lost its mind in the crate the whole ride out to the field. It's barking and raising cane because it's early in the season. And it's not done much. And so it's, it's burned through a lot of its sugar in the truck. And then they get to the field and it just goes, you know, a million miles an hour. I've had some labs tap out that way, but almost never in a duck hunting situation. Um, and, and same with like, you know, you referenced the cold. I mean, we hunt in some pretty cold conditions late season here with, you know, a lot of ice and, and frigid windshields. And I, and I don't, I worry about, you know, at, at that point in time, I want the dog's body on keeping it, keeping it warm and in, in performing, not trying to spend energy breaking down that food. We'll get it plenty of food at the end of the hunt that most of these dogs don't need supplement it during a hunt. What about sometimes when you got that buddy that makes breakfast in the blind or brings a bag of McDonald's and there's an extra McMuffin left over or sausage biscuit and he just throws it to Fido over there before the next retrieve? Is this a no-no? I wouldn't. I would say no. Because, again, you're just disrupting a performance, right? Like, And so if if you were sitting there hunting, it tastes good, it smells good, but if you were in the middle of an intense workout – it, it would make you puke, right? I mean, that'd be the last thing you'd want in the middle of a workout. And I, I think the same thing with these guys. They'll eat them because they'll eat anything, but it's not what's optimally designed. The other thing too, and, and I went through about of it with my cocker last year, is that some of those high-fat foods in some of these dogs can cause a condition called pancreatitis. Uh, and, and I almost lost her last year. She was hospitalized for 18 days, um, and I didn't leave her side for 18 days and slept about two hours a night trying to keep that dog alive. Um, and she's a dog that would eat anything. And, and your, your speculation is she got into some of our kids' food or, or something happened that she got a high-fat diet and it caused her pancreas to, to almost kill her. And so it's, it's one that, again, I think that, that you want to share with your hunting buddy, you want to take care of your dog and treat him special. But you know, if you want it to break off a small piece so that you're sharing, that's fine. But I think, you know, throwing the whole cheeseburger or throwing the whole McMuffin or giving high quantities of that, I think you have that, that potential to set up more issues than the benefit that the dog's going to see. Awesome. When you start talking about the length of a workout, 
you know, like my trainer will tell me that's enough. You did that long enough. I don't even want you doing another one of those for at least 72 hours. They know when to turn you on and turn you off as a human, you know, like we, you don't need to be expanding that much energy on another high intensity weight workout this week, go and do, walk, whatever, go for a 20 minute walk in the morning. <clears throat> a lot of different advice like that, Joe, as a dog, they can't tell you when they're tired. They can't tell you that they're, that they're feeling bad or that they're hurt. How do we know? What do we look for? When do we know it's time to turn them off and get them back in the crate or get them back in, in the environment to where they're not expanding a bunch of energy, expanding a bunch of energy? I, I think it's the, the attitude. I think that's where they're telling, you know, that dog that, um, you know, hits the water, you know, big water entry is excited on every retrieve, suddenly is, you know, pausing before jumping in or, or looking to you and saying, Hey, are you sure you want me to do that? Uh, you know, out in the field, like with, with a upland dog, that dog, that, that starting to kind of shorten his distance away from you, um, just looks doggy. I think, uh, it's a, it's a perception that most handlers get where you look and it's not your dog anymore. That's when you know a dog's getting in trouble. And I think the same thing happens like with heat stroke, you look in that dog's eyes and it looks like nobody's home and in that the dog's in trouble or they look at you and say, Hey boss, something's not right. I think it's being aware of those types of signals because they're pretty subtle. These dogs are pretty good at doing everything we ask of them until it's too late. And, and that's where a lot of these conditions that, it can lead to the death of a dog. I a hundred percent are on, on the owner handler typically. And so like a heat stroke situation, those type, we, we have to serve as their governor in those situations. So it's, it's, it's understanding those subtle cues. Um, lameness is another one where a dog might go on a retrieve and, and use all four legs, but they get back and now they're holding that back leg up. Um, and you think, well, geez, he just ran a hundred yards for that retrieve and seemed fine, but now he's holding the leg up. So now I'm going to hold, I'm going to throw another one. And I'll be danged. He ran again and used all four legs, but now he's holding that leg up. You know, is it is it a cruciate sprain, or did the dog tear its cruciate? But his drive is so much that he's going to run and make that retrieve, and then show you his lameness back at the truck. And so it's picking up on those small cues that the dog you started with that day, or the dog you hunted with the day before, isn't the dog that's right in front of you, and in, in being able to shut it down and and figure out why. It may be something simple but figuring out why this dog is different. And, and that's people always come in and say, but they're not in pain. And, and the dog literally has its leg hiked up where it could not hike it up any further. And, and my question is, well, how in the hell can you say he's not in pain? And they say, because he's not yowling or he's not screaming. Well, hell, he's not using one of his limbs. That's him telling you he's in pain. And so it's picking up on the signs that they do give because they're oftentimes not, you know, they're not holding up a billboard saying, I can't do another rep. It's, they're going to try their dangest to do it. So it's picking up on some of the other signals that they give you. So if he gives me that signal of the lameness of one, one of his legs up in the air after a, a long retrieve, and is that automatic to the vet or do you, can you tell, can you just rest him? So I'm a huge advocate of what I call a tailgate exam. And so, you know, in that situation, when you would recognize a problem, or if you haven't, and you're done with the day, you're done with the duck hunt, you're done with the training session, look the dog over. And so it may be something as simple as that he split a pad, or he's got a cracked nail, which you can address, right? But if you don't look, you don't know. And so it's looking that dog over, you know, looking in their nose, is there anything jammed up there? Do the eyes look, you know, normal? Are they red? Do they have discharge? Look in the ears, feel up in the armpits where they can get cuts, or they can have sticks jammed, fill up in the groin, feel their feet, feel their knees, feel their elbows, and then feel over the whole body and just do a quick tailgate exam and make sure there's not something obvious that needs to be addressed. And so your case where the dog's holding its leg up, is there an obvious reason that you can say, hey, it, it looks like it's a toenail or it looks like it's a pad, then address it. If there's nothing obvious, then, then maybe it is a matter. Do we see how he does overnight? You know, maybe it's a simple sprain or a strain that will resolve. If it was some sort of trauma where, it, you know, you think, is the leg broken, then yeah, then you need to get him into a vet. But if it's just a matter of an injury, the, the, the tendency is what do I, what happens if I try to play through that injury, right? And then push the dog further. And that's, that's when the wheels can come off. And so it's, it's recognizing that they're saying, Hey boss, something's wrong. And at least just pulling them to the sideline and saying, can I figure it out or will rest take care of it? Back to that cold weather condition, Joe, on 
a swimming hunt where you're hunting over water, ducks, the dogs in and out of the, the blind, in and out of the pond, in and out of the marsh, whatever he's get his retrieves in. <clears throat> what do we do to, what can a duck hunter bring to take care of his and her dog, his or her dog during that hunt of relieving some of that, you know, that cold coat or um, like maybe a mild form of hypothermia setting into where it might be several minutes in between the next flock working us. They might be staying on the roost a little bit longer. They might be coming off slow. Um, what can we bring? What should we be looking out for that? Or is it okay just to let them be soaking wet in those kind of conditions and they're going to be fine? So uh, a couple of things. One, I think, is getting them out of the wind is huge. And so, you know, some of these dogs, it, it, their coat's designed to, to, you know, help shield them. So, you know, I had a Chessie that she'd have ice formed on her coat, but if you'd get underneath that layer, it would be nice and warm. And so I think, you know, in the super cold weather, having a neoprene vest that fits correctly, I think that's a big thing. A lot of these vests, you know, especially if a dog's ripped where they're heavy up front and the narrow waist, you'll have these vests that, that don't fit well. And so every dog I've ever owned, I've had to modify the neoprene vest to fit the dog better. And so having a snug fit vest where we're not having water and air get up in there, um, using some type of, whether it's a bolt blind or, you know, a marsh stand, something where you can get that dog up out of the water, have the water drain away from it, get them out of the wind. And then the thing I would love to see a company that has waterfall supplies is a heated pad. I think that that would be a huge thing. Um, my cocker who doesn't have like the undercoat that my Chessie did, uh, I usually shut her down usually the first or second week in November and we just start getting too cold. She's not designed for that super cold water. Uh, she can handle it, but it's the sitting in between retrieves that I worry with her. And I think that, you know, with all these portable battery tools and power kits that we have, I think if, if someone would have a mat with a heater, that, that, that would be dynamite for some of these, these cold weather dogs. Um, I know a lot of people use like the buddy heaters and things like that to heat the boats and having the dogs in there. I, th I think the big thing is trying to dry them off and keep them out of the wind. So out of the wind and having a vest, do you carry chamois and towels in there to, to help dry them off? I do. And the problem I think you run into though, especially if it's a good day, is you quickly, those things quickly get soaked and, and frozen is the other. So I, I usually start off with the best of intentions and have those, but I, I feel like, you know, it's the days that when they're, when it's cold, and it's windy and the ducks are flying, you know, a half hour into the hunt, potentially you have three of those that are sopping wet or frozen. And so it's, it's, I usually intend to do that, but I, I haven't found the way to keep those effective as the hunt goes on. When you, when you start talking about the, the, the performance part of it, let's take it, let's stay in the duck dog realm. Is there something that's too much for a dog? Is there a swim that's too long? When do you start like thinking like, oh, is he going to make it back? What are some things that we can be thinking about, Joe Spoo? Like, do we got to be able to have the boat ready? Because I see a lot of outfitters that are, that are you know, they have a boat accessible in case there's too many ducks down to help the dogs or to go get the long retrieves. They might have to go finish a cripple. What are some of the things that we can think about as far as like the length of a retrieve? And I'm talking water condition again, because a dry land a dry land retreat might not be as harsh on it if they're running across a stubble cornfield or something but what are some of the things that come to mind when i ask a question like that about as far as like is a 600 yard blind okay in a swimming condition are we hoping that he gets up on the shore him or him or her and runs back to us dry land what what are your what are the thoughts that go in your mind when i ask something like that so uh, the thoughts that go through my mind are probably similar to your like it, it, it's the things that scare me when I'm out with my dogs and in preparing for those situations and getting in a situation that you haven't been prepared for. And so when I first started hunting with my cocker, I had, uh, a cripple that was probably 150 yards out. She took off after it and it kept diving on her and she kept going after it. And it was about that time that I realized that my transmitter was back in my truck and there was no getting to her. And I, I was certain that the dog was going to die. I took off running and stepped off of a, a shelf and there was no getting to her. And she finally went under, grabbed the bird underwater, came back and, and she was fine. It was all panic on my part that was unwarranted. And so I think the big thing is, is, is kind of understanding the, the conditions you're putting your dog in, right? Like if you're hunting a point on a great big wide open lake in, you know, December in South Dakota with 30 mile an hour north winds versus if you're hunting that same body of water in a backwater for blue wing teal, 
it, it's, it's, it's the conditions that you're in and the conditions that you've trained for. And so is this, you know, a young dog that hasn't had a lot of water work and we're suddenly going to get them out where they're going to get out far enough where they're not going to be able to see the duck in the swells and they're not going to be able to see you giving hand signals or hear your whistle. It's, it's, there's so many variables, I guess. It's understanding what you've trained for, what the dog can handle physically, and then how you're going to get that dog out of the situation if it gets in over its head. And so it's, it's, I think it's being prepared. Everybody jokes around the clinic that, you know, I'm called worst case scenario Joe, because I always plan for, you know, shit hitting the fan. And if it doesn't, then it was a good day. And I think that that's what happens is we sometimes put these dogs into situations that we didn't anticipate that happening. And, and that's where these dogs get into trouble. And so if it's hunting big water, do we have a boat that if we need to go get the dog, we can, um, you know, if we can help with cripples, you know, is there, is there certain retrieves that you just know that you shouldn't send that dog on? And is it trained well enough that you can keep them from breaking and going on that retrieve? I think all those things are things that you have to be conscious of. Does the dog need to be tethered so that you can only send it on retrieves it can handle? Um, and I think the end of the, the dog's life or the other end of the career is important too, is that that retrieve that that dog may be made when it was five or six years old, maybe it can't make it now that it's a 13-year-old dog and, and asking it to go out in those white caps is just too much. So I think it's understanding and being honest with what your dog is trained for and physically can handle? And then how are you prepared to get them out of a situation should it go south? One of the things I've seen with what you're talking about is training for the condition um, is, you know, some people that might travel over to the Missouri or, you know, we've been on different rivers across the country, Mississippi, the White, lots Arkansas River, Boise, the Snake River, the Columbia River Basin. Training for a current is a lot different than training for still water, even with wind and white caps. Would you tell your customer, your client or somebody in a seminar when you're doing a speaking engagement, Joe, of make sure that you're doing the ample amount of training in that current? Because it is a lot different with the way the water carries the dog and then the swim back against the current. What are some things to think about if you're a river dog hunter? Yeah, and I think it's, I think yes, all those are you know out here the river gets good in the worst weather conditions, and so I think you know I think I have a set of clientele whose dogs excel at hunting the Missouri, and and you know dogs that are great duck dogs ninety percent of the season that that guys don't even take them and hunt those conditions for all the things that you say, and so I think it's important to understand as you, as you have you trained for that situation, and in the river hunting is a completely different beast, you know it, it's the Missouri's good out here usually when it's. 20 below wind chill and everything else has a foot of snow on it. Well, most dogs haven't trained for that condition. And so I think it's being, again, honest, is your dog even trained for it? And it's, it's, you know, every year uh, my buddies and I talk about, you know, we don't go out because in, in to, to hunt the Missouri, cause we're not familiar with it. You know, we hunt Northeast South Dakota and, and spend a lot of time up there. And, you know, the time of year where you get the itch to go hunt it is, January when the conditions are horrible. Well, that's no time to scout until we don't put the time in in the summer. And I'd say the same thing with the dogs. If you're not training those type of conditions, don't wait till January when it's 20 below zero to ask that dog to make a retrieve on the river. And, and so being honest with yourself, is my dog even ready or prepared to do that type of, of work that I'm asking it to do? And again, the dog's not going to tell you that he won't. As soon as you say, say his name or her name, they're gone. So it's up to us as the owner and the handler to make that decision. Uh, in your earlier story or five, five minutes ago, Joe, you said that you forgot your transmitter back at the truck. Is it, what was this transmitter for? E-collar. Okay. So you, you are a very educated professional that makes his livelihood. Your revenue stream comes from giving people advice and giving, taking care of dogs and putting them on medication plans, physical therapy plans. You are a, a guru when it comes to the science and the biological makeup of a, of our, of our dogs, of our sporting dogs, our duck dogs, our, is it okay to use those? I want to get into the mentality and the, and the ethics because is it okay? Is it a very ethical way to train? And should a dog be on an e-collar trained with them in condition for one? And you're laughing because you're like, why is he freaking going there? And here, here. I heard that can of worms open in the background. <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, do you, do you look down on it at all? I, I don't. I, I, where I think the problem is is people use them as crutches. And so it's just like anything else in life. 
that's used incorrectly. So you're, you know, you talk about drugs or other things. Every medication that I use in the vet clinic, if used incorrectly, can cause problems just like it can treat a condition. And my view on training collars is it, it, that situation being an example of it. I would hate to have my dog in a situation that they could that could result in their death and I didn't have a way to tap them on the shoulder or use as a leash. I, I couldn't live with myself. And so it's I do the vast majority of my training with zero collar. Um, the, the, the cocker that I'm talking about was trained to field trial level without ever having a collar on. But during hunting season, I do use them. And because to me... I'd, I'd hate to have a dog where you're hunting by a road and takes off running and you couldn't stop. It, it did not listen to whistle. It did not stop. And so I think when used correctly, they're one of the best safety items that we have in our toolbox with these dogs. Um, but I think you have to put in all of the groundwork beforehand and not shortcut the system for it to be an effective tool. How important is discipline and breaking a dog or I don't know if there's better terminology than that, Joe, but when people look at the way that you might get that dog to the point to where they can perform, like we're talking about these dogs that perform for us. We have some high powered master hunters and retriever hunter champions and derby list dogs and qualified all ages dogs and dogs that are, they're doing it. You know, they're the top of their, of their, of the ladder in the rung of, of, of that ladder when it comes to sporting dogs. You have to be disciplined, right? You have to be consistent. You, um, the discipline of that dog is very important. The ethics of training come into this is when you're a dog lover, you make sure that dogs live their best life through medicine, rehab, surgeries, everything that you and your wife are doing for the dog population, specifically sporting dogs. How important is it to understand as a dog owner or a potential sporting dog, duck dog, gun dog owner that you there, it might not all be, you know, apples and oranges or, you know, like ice cream all the time and sweetness. There is going to have to be that. It's almost like raising a kid. You can't be afraid to discipline a kid. Uh, Obviously there's a difference between discipline and then abuse in every part of life. Just like when you talk about drugs and alcohol, moderation and abusing that, like how important is that? And do you talk to people about that of how much is too much, how much isn't enough type of thing? And so I, I, I think how I'd answer that is, is the word discipline in, in that, it, you know, I think you talk training collars and discipline and it automatically has you know, negative connotations versus if we think of discipline as having discipline and being regimented and having a set of rules and, and putting in the time and the effort and having boundaries and being disciplined is, is probably more accurate. And I think that dog training, you know, over the course of my 20 year career has shifted immensely. You know, it, it, I, I came up in this school of dominance roles and, you know, forcing to the pile and where there was a lot of negative pressure that, that was used in the training of our dogs, whether it was hunting dogs or, you know, other dogs, there was a lot of negative. I do feel that we have made a huge leap in understanding canine behavior in that using more positive training methods are more effective and we're seeing better and higher levels of performance without a lot of the negativity that we had before. To your point, though, I think there are times that things are just black and white wrong and there, that there needs to be some type of correction. And so it, it, that correction in some people's eyes is lighten them up and, and you know, using a heavy physical correction. Where it came to, to, to me, I, my cocker is, was bred by a, a British guy who is one of the top spaniel trainers in the country. <clears throat> we went out with a group of 50 dogs. Not a single one had an electronic collar on, and those dogs were as regimented as possible. And in his scenario, just him raising his voice got the same response that another trainer may get with like an eight on a collar. But he had been disciplined in his training methods that, that ah, 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 of his voice would just crush that dog and, and, you know, stop it in its tracks. And so I, I think the point of my blithering is a lot of physical correction is not a good thing. And I think we have better methods of doing that. I think where those physical 
you know, negative stimuli come in is in situations where the dog could injure itself or, or get into, you know, a major sort of issue. And that, and that's where I use them is that dog that is, you know, off on a run that, that potentially is going to result in getting hit by a car. And so it's, it's, I think that there's a shift in, and you see it in the different dog groups that where we're, there used to be a lot of physical correction, a lot of that has changed and it's using it where appropriate to get the maximum level of response from the dog. And when you're talking about maximum level of response, um, can we expect our dogs to be always on? And is there is there such thing as when we talked about the length of a retrieve or the distance of retrieve? Let's take let's just take the southern duck season, um, the sixty day season. Is there too much in a in a sixty day period? Can you hunt a dog every day if? let's say it's a three to four or five hour deal every day and that you're out of the woods by 11 or so, but that dog's been up since five waiting to go, you know, he's physical baby activities, five, four or five hours. Can you hunt a dog 60 days in a row? Do they need a day off? Because even baseball players don't play seven days a week. NFL guys play one day a week. So with the new rules and the new schedule on Thursday, you know, some of them have play a game on Sunday and then only have a few days of rest in between, but can you hunt a dog every day of the season? I think you probably could given the right condition. So, you know, as the dog went into it in good condition, it's given good nutrition during the season and in that time off during the day. So say from 11 o'clock to five o'clock the next morning, that dog's comfortable. And so if, if you throw him in the box on a truck that has the wind whipping through it and he's sitting there shivering and never has a chance to recover, probably not. But if he goes into the lodge and is on a comfortable bed and he gets a good meal and he's able to kind of stretch out and recover his muscles and, and adequately refuel fuel, he probably can. And, and as much as you and I could. And so, you know, likely in that 60 day season, there's going to be a couple of days off, uh, just, just the nature of schedules and weather and things like that. So I think if the dog's properly taken care of, you'd probably be okay. But it's, it's, that's the big variable is, you know, my idea of that dog being comfortable and somebody else's could be two different things. And I think if we never let that dog recover, so we put him in the bed of a truck in a crate, that, that dog's going to get beat down because, you know, the mental confinement, he's, he's basically working and then in a hole, working and then in a hole. And if in that hole uh, in the dog box, he's got to struggle to stay warm, he's working then too. And so it's, it's how you take care of him in between the work episodes, I think is the big, the big variable there. And then back to what we can be looking for as an owner handler, Mr. Joe Spoo, <clears throat> when you talk baseball injuries, you think rotator cuff, you think ligaments and tendons, maybe a pulled hamstring, maybe a pulled groin. When you talk about football, you think concussions, broken bones. What can we, what do you see mostly and what can we look for? Like what are the most common injuries in a duck dog that you've seen over the, the length of your career with what you and your wife have going on at your practice and in your hunting career, being at lodges and being out in boats and blinds? What, what are some of the most common injuries that occur in a duck dog? So I think number one, just because the most common breed is labs is, is cruciate ligament disease. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's a soapbox issue for me, uh, that we could do an entire episode on, um, because I think there's more to it than, than, uh, people are giving credit. We think of it as an athletic injury. And I think with Labradors, we're going to find out that there's probably some hereditary issues to it and that people are breeding dogs that maybe they shouldn't have. And so cruciate ligament injury is probably number one when we talk about retrievers uh not necessarily a duck hunting specific but more of a breed sort of issue and so uh, you know asking about parentage and and offspring and relatives as far as cruciate ligaments are, are concerned i think is important uh, we see too much of it the from there as far as actual injuries out hunting um I'd, I'd say a fair amount of foreign body penetration. So, you know, dog jumping in and somebody not clearing the, the landing area of sticks or debris in a dog impaling itself, um, cutting the foot pads. We'll see, you know, every year dogs hunting stubble fields and they'll jam stubble through the, the bottom of their foot, and, you know, and have corn stalks or bean stubble stuck up into their foot pad. Same with eye injuries. Uh, cattails can be just like razors on eyes. And so we'll have dogs that will cut their eyes on cattails. Um, those would, I think those types of traumatic cuts and things like that. The other thing too, depending upon, 
you know, if you get a dog that's a little overweight or if you have a high stand where he's jumping out of, sometimes we'll see shoulder issues. If a dog's having to land and there's a lot of impact on the shoulders, uh, will be the other thing. But trauma, trauma is huge. I think we see a lot of, you know, cuts, abrasions, penetrating wounds related to, to jumping into water and jumping into hidden obstructions. When you just said the part about the shoulder injury, a lot of labs uh, live their life jumping out of a pickup truck and then jumping back in. It seems to me like jumping back in is probably not an issue as long as they're in shape and they can get up there. But now are you telling me that I should be carrying my dog off the tailgate? Or at least assisting them down. And so it's, 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 I find myself, like I deal with this literally every day I, I have dogs in with shoulder and elbow injuries. And I think a lot of them are related to that jump down. And so at least, and I'm, I'm as guilty as the next guy, you get out the field, what do you do? You open the crate, the dog jumps down. It's kind of breaking that habit. And like with, with my dogs, I kind of lead them down where it's not the full impact of their body coming down on those front legs. Um, and so, yeah, we should be assisting them off the tailgate. There's a lot of stupid injuries that occur from just letting our dog jump off the tailgate. You have an association with Yukonuba. Is this fair to say? I'm finding I'm finding out some of this daily after I've met you. I know that I've met you at Yukonuba events and workshops. You you're very you come very highly accredited. You 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 have a lot of knowledge in this area. Why would you choose Yukonuba to hang your hat on when it can't comes to the nutritional part of a dog's life? So I, I've fed the product for over 20 years, uh, and for me, it started in vet school. Um, obviously, as a veterinarian, we're exposed to all the, the food companies and all the different philosophies, and um, I've always felt that that the, the Yukonuba scientists were the, the nerds of the nutrition world and always try and develop products that scientifically made sense to have these dogs live longer. Um, I've done consulting work for the company on and off over the last 15 years and, and just having the ability to work with their scientists. It's, you know, I think you have the cool flashy kids and then you have the nerds that run the world. And I think that these guys are the, the, that nerd category of, they just live and breathe dog food and cat food and, and wanting these dogs to live forever. And the science and innovation is, is, second to none. And, and I've felt that since, you know, I owned my first Chessie, my second year of vet school, I've fed the product since then and, and have been a big believer in it. Why are we getting the results that we get out of it? Um, I, I have so many success stories and people were, are always going to say, well, you get paid to say that you're, you're a paid influencer or you're a, uh, you know, it's an endorsement deal. You, you put it on TV, people see the logo. Of course, you're going to say that Brad's dog, Ella, in Chico, California, is feeling better after she ate it. Les is 79. He's got a dog named Pistol that's six. He says he's never, ever seen the dog act the way he does. He said that he would walk up to a bowl of food, kind of put his nose in it, and then just kind of wander off and chase a butterfly for a minute, go back, take a bite, go take a leak, come back, take a bite. These dogs are literally like they'll eat the bowl if we're not careful. Like, I'm being serious when I say there is a big difference in their coat, their teeth, their gums. What what can a Yukonuba owner get ready for and prepared for with some of the changes, some of the ones I just mentioned and others? I, I, I think it's, it's, it, it is the 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 constant drive to improve, right? As new information comes and we understand these dogs more and we understand the science more, incorporating those innovations and in, in, in that knowledge into these formulas. It's, it's, and you'll see it in any industry. You have the companies that, you know, make a hit on the scene and then they never change anything, right? They had that, that splash in their reputation and they kind of ride that wave and, and they don't innovate, they don't change, they don't bring new things to the market versus I think with this company, what you see is that there's that constant desire to improve the quality of our dog's lives and do it in a way that is measurable, that you see the results, but then is also backed by science and research and innovation. And to me, that's, that's the kicker with these guys is, is investing in the science and the innovation that, that, you know, it's not good enough 
that we can always make good dogs better and how can we do that? And I think they're trying to do that and are successfully doing it through these diets and these changes that we're going to see. And so it's not just, you know, the dog's a complete package, right? So there's things in there to help with the teeth. There's things in there to help with the stool and every piece in between. So could you say that if every one of your clients listened to what we're talking about and, and, believed in the diet and what you is doing to make these dogs lives better. Do you think your job would become easier? Do you think that you would see a healthier population of dogs if they stayed consistent on this Yukonuba diet that you've been pretty much consistently feeding for two decades? Yeah. And I will say like, it's not going to be the answer for every single dog out there. And so the reason that we have a number of good companies is that there are some dogs that just don't do good. And so I don't, I don't want it to seem like it's the absolute only. Now, if everybody fed a product from a company that did the type of research and, and quality ingredients and consistency of ingredients, yeah. And I think we see that, you know, like I, I have a dog that's going to turn 15 in January, all things equal. She should be able to start hunting next fall when, or next uh, month when grouse season opens at nearly 15 years of age. And I think diet has played a huge role in that, that she's been healthy, young, and active, you know, even to 15 years of age where I'll get 10-year-old dogs into practice that look like they're 100 years old. And, and I think nutrition is the one thing that starts at puppyhood that we feed our dogs every day that affects them today, tomorrow, six years from now, 15 years from now, how we feed that dog is that vitally important. And so not going with you know, something trendy, something that's niche something that's just a marketing tool that has no scientific backing. It, it's sticking with, you know, these major companies want these dogs to live forever. And whether people want to admit it or not, a lot of these niche dog foods are a marketing scam, not a scam. That might be a bad word, but they're, they're, they're they are in a way, cause they're not, they're not, they're not backing it up with anything that you specialize in and that you can Uber specialize employed by they have no scientists on staff. And so it's, it's answering a consumer demand for things that consumers think that they want and then producing a product that doesn't kill dogs. And, and what's always ironic to me is that a lot of these small brands are made by the same companies. They're co-packed. And so you'll have companies sniping at each other that, you know, are, are essentially in the same family because they're made all made by the same manufacturer. And so it's, it's a, I think the problem with the pet food industry is that a lot of those companies and a lot of the salespeople's hearts are in the, they believe the story they're telling. And so that's what makes it dangerous, right? That the, it, I don't think that they're doing it in a way that is malicious. I think that they, they, their hearts are in the right place. They're just not using science. They're using a oftentimes fictionalized story of what they think a dog needs versus what science has proven that a dog needs. Five minutes ago, you told me that you have a dog that's about to turn 15. And if everything goes right the next 30, 60 days, she should be hunting this season. Joe, come on. In dog years, I just calculated this. I picked up my calculator and that comes out to 105 years old. My question to you, Joe Spoo, is dog years a real thing? How did they come up with that? How do they do a multiplier of seven? And is it because a dog that's one years old is about what a seven-year-old is in his adolescence and then a 14-year-old, two-year-old is a teenage dog. I understand the le- that they don't live as long as us, but is seven the, is the, is the multiplier of seven a realistic thing? And do you go by that? So uh, just within the last couple of weeks, a, a new study came out where, where somebody came up with a more accurate uh, multiplier. It's less than seven. And I think it changes as a dog ages. Um, but it would, someone looked at that scientist, and I do not know off the top of my head, but that's a very, very recent article that was just out in the last couple of weeks where that, that math has changed. Um, and I think when I did that, that the new calculations on Bell, she's probably the equivalent of, you know, an 80-year-old uh, as opposed to a 100-year-old. Well, that's more realistic. That's more realistic. I mean, my buddy's 79, and he was on this podcast last week, and he's getting ready to start his 66th, 66th duck season. Right. Since you, heck yeah. And that's why you put good things into your body and take care of it. Right. Exactly. And I think for so, and even with these dogs, I think so much of it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I have clients all the time come in with an eight, nine, 10 year old dog. And they say, well, we're probably going to retire him and get a new one. And the dog is a physical specimen. And I'll say, why the hell are you getting a new dog? Or why are we retiring this dog? 
because he's eight, because he's nine, because he's 10, but they've taken care of the dog. And there's no reason that these dogs shouldn't, if taken care of, shouldn't be able to hunt well into their early teens, just like we should be able to hunt into our 70s and 80s. The problem is exactly what you say. How many people suffer from obesity? How many dogs suffer from obesity? They put garbage in their body. You know, we get into our mid-40s and we quit exercising because we're getting older and we we, we make a self-fulfilling prophecy. We quit treating our bodies like it's a young thing we should take care of and it becomes old. It happens with us. It happens with our dogs. And there's That's no- crazy to me. That's crazy to me. I know guys that are in their mid-40s and mid-50s that are in better shape than they were at 19, 25. Right. You know what I mean? Like you, for and that's and I think probably because you know we're we're both not young pups anymore, and we want to keep doing this for another fifty years. Yeah, we're gonna to have to pour it to the coals to be able to do that. You and know? I'm not, and I'm willing, I'm willing to do that, and I'm also willing to not cut corners on my dog's food and nutrition and veterinarian plan and and all of that. But now you just answer, you just kind of contradicted what most people say that I talk to about the new dog theory. And it's always eight or nine. Start, get another one started. And now that's saying that, you know, in the next year, that one's going to be ready when we're going to retire Terry or, or, or Fiona at 10 or whatever. You're saying pump the brakes a second. If you've been taking care of that dog, each, it's all individual cases. You might not necessarily need to go out and start a new dog because a lot of people are like, well, I want to still be hunting with Fido, but he's getting so old. Um, but now you're maybe cutting him off before he still might be in his prime a little bit. He might still have two or three good years left in him. And now you have all those, those opportunities to make more memories with Fido, but now all of your energy and concentration is going into Sarah down here, this new little badass female. And now you're letting Fido just live his last few years on the couch when he really wants to be out in the blind. And I, and I think you probably see the opposite too, because I see it all the time. If someone gets that dog too early, well, this other dog is a rock star and they continue to rely on the rock star. And now they have a three or four year old dog that they spent no time with. They don't like the dog True. and, and they end up needing to get a third dog when the actual first dog got old enough. And they have this middle-aged dog that's kind of just a pet because they, they had this great dog that was older that continued to perform. And I see that way too frequently where people get a second dog and, and don't give it the training that it should because they had a dog that was doing the work, you know? So it's, I'm an advocate for, you know, I'm a dog collector. And so I end up, you know, I'm always, you know, convincing my wife, we need more dogs. So I'm never talking people out of getting dogs, but I think, you know, like a guy that just duck hunts and needs one dog, I think, making that call is, is important. You know, there's not a clock that says at seven, you better start another one because somebody's going to end up getting the short change there. You know, wait till the dog looks like he's maybe starting to, to fatigue. You know, it's just, none of us wants to miss a season with a dog. And I think that's where people get afraid. You get a dog that starts getting eight, nine, 10 bad things can happen. And people don't want to go into a season dogless. Regarding the security of a dog, Joe Spoo, a couple questions. The GPS and the transmitter that you can have, oper- you know, put into a dog. Do, are you a, do you offer this service at your clinic? Do you believe in it? And is there any other way to look after the security if a dog runs off, gets lost? You don't want it to end up on the dog catcher's truck and in the dog pound. Um, what What are your thoughts on that? So I, I don't believe there's any implantable GPSs. So there's the microchips. That- the microchips, okay. Yeah, that you can scan. I, I'm a big believer in them. I, I we we see success stories all the time of people being reunited. How does it work? It's it's basically like a, a vaccine. So it's 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 a needle that's bigger than a vaccine needle that you slip that underneath the skin. So it's 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 just basically a small, oh, like a large piece of rice or or a, a couscous. Like it's probably a little bigger than rice. Is what the microchip is, and it's in the barrel of a needle, and you just inject the needle and, and then there's a plunger that puts it underneath the skin. It's very atraumatic. Like it's not traumatic at all to the dog any more than a vaccine would be. How long do they last? They're supposed to last a lifetime. And so and how- trans it's basically the reader. They have no, they're not emitting as far as like, they don't have a battery or anything like that. It's just the, 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 the reader has to be close enough to be able to pick up the information. So the reader is held where? it's a scanner that you scan over the dog. And so most humane societies, vet clinics, places where a dog would end up, will have them. 
and a lot of the companies that make the chips have value added services. So if you lose your dog, you can contact them and they'll send out flyers to all the vet clinics and the humane societies in the area. Um, if like one of the companies we use, if your dog gets into poison, you can call animal poison control and the toxicologist will walk your veterinarian through how to treat the poisoning. Um, it, which one call pays for the entire microchip process. And so if you ever have a dog, you know, I, I, one of my dogs last week, a client had brought me an espresso chocolate cake and my damn dog got into it on the way home. So back to the clinic, we came to get her to throw up and, you know, had that progressed to where it was a problem, you know, and, and it was a client owned dog. We could have consulted with the toxicologist and calculated what the toxic dose of the espresso was and all that kind of stuff. So, so it's kind of like a, it's kind of like an OnStar in your car of kind of, yeah. Kind of. Depend upon the brand that you use. Yep. So along with security and safety of a dog's longevity, and I know that we're getting ready to finish this up, I appreciate your time, is sleeping outside. You made a comment earlier, Joe Spoo, about <clears throat> how your dogs sleep in the bed with you and your wife, which I could picture. Is it a California king at least, Joe, or is it – what do you got going on here? <laughs> it is, and that's when we travel and there's only a, a queen. One of us will usually sleep on the floor or in another room. <laughs> the dogs always get the bed. We got three, three, and so it's 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 one of the benefits of having kids is that my daughter's old enough that she takes one of the dogs now, and so when she's not home to to have one of the dogs in her bed, it gets a little scrunched at night. So, so do you roll your eyes and put flip your nose up at somebody that their dog sleeps outside every night of the year? Is that okay, or is that a no no? No, I, I think everybody's situation is different. I think it's how much is that the part where I'll get kind of pissed off and irritated is that dog that lives in a kennel call it 300 days out of the year with zero attention and then you know the 60 days of hunting season it then gets attention uh the people that treat the dog as a tool like they would a shotgun or you know the box in the back of their truck that's where i'll get it there, there are people that for various reasons can't have the dog in the house or there's allergy issues with kids or you know that's that you know if that dog's taken care of outside I think that you can have adequate housing. I think we've seen that improve over the years, you know, from when I was a kid where, you know, in this part of the country, you'd maybe have an open face, you know, old barrel to like, I have a buddy who, you know, works in the HVAC industry, his dog's kennel, they have more air exchanges and heated flooring and air conditioning, better housing environment than, you know, sometimes I think most people do. And so, you know, that dog living outside is a way different than, than it was back in the day. And so, no, I, it's just because I personally have my dogs inside. I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily the answer for everybody, but I think taking care of that dog is what's important and, and giving the time it needs as an intelligent being. So I assume that your dogs go to the duck blind and come home f- with you from the duck blind in the back seat of a leather with heated seats or what is your opinion on this this new revolution of roto molded one piece molded um you know these new style kennels are they worth the money are they worth the headache of picking them up cuz they're so damn heavy or or are you not leaving home without one of these new style roto molded kennels yeah i'm not and so I, I will say that's the one i used to be the guy that you know as the season got towards the end I'd feel guilty and, and let the dogs ride in the car. Uh, but I'm a big believer in crates. I think that they do save dogs' lives. <clears throat> I had an incident uh, six years ago on a January leaving the clinic. My dogs come to work with me every day. They were in the back of my, my – at the time, I was driving a, a, a little Jetta wagon back and forth between work. And I was at a stop sign out in the middle of nowhere, and, and a gal hit me going 65 and just crushed the back end of my, my vehicle. I had three dogs in the back of it, all in rotomolded kennels. And, and it, they literally, their noses were inches from her bumper. And, and had they not been in those rotomolded kennels, I hate to think what would happen. So, no, I'm a, I'm a big believer in them. Um, I think that they're not all created equal. I think where people need to look at is the doors and, and making sure that those doors are secure and able to stay on. During a crash, uh, I think that that's where, you know, they're not all created equal as the doors, particularly if they get thrown out of a bed of a truck and things like that. But I, I'm a huge believer in them. So Joe Spoo officially on the Foul Life Duck Dogs podcast, Fueled by Yukonuba is giving his roto-molded kennel endorsement to... 
I, I think there's a number of good ones. Oh, Joe, we had a chance. I don't. I, we had a chance here. No. <laughs> I, it, it, I, I do. I think that there's a, a number of good ones out there. Okay, I, then give me a couple. Yeah, yeah. I, I use the Lucky Duck kennels. And so I have Lucky Duck kennels in the back of my truck. Um, we have a couple of gunner kennels. I have a transport vehicle here at the clinic, and we have a couple of gunner kennels that we use to transport pets between an uh, emergency hospital in town. I think both of those kennels are good products. Okay, I'll take your word as gospel then. I don't use them. I don't, I don't have an association. I use them. I have several different ones as well. Okay, the human side, the, the non-veterinarian side of Joe Spoo as we end this. Thank you again for being on, Joe Spoo. Let's do this again as we get into the season. I can give you an update on how some of our dogs are doing with uh, the new diets that we might be seeing soon um, without giving any information out. If you woke up on a Saturday and you know that you're going duck hunting and you get to pick your weather – I want to know what the sky looks like, what the wind is doing, what the temperature is doing, and where are you hunting and what species? What's your, what's your go-to dream hunt that Joe Spoo just dreams of and, and lives on? So uh, cloudy, northwest wind, super strong, just above freezing with a little precipitation in there. Not rainy, not snowy, but just that moist air. Um, and it's a toss-up, like if mallards are working tight over the decoys in a cattail slew, that's hard to beat, but I, it, it, so is, you know, blue bills and cans coming in hard, you know, low into that wind. So I, I'd say both. And I'm spoiled that my hunting spots, like I literally can have both within a 30 minute drive. So there's been times where, you know, we'll start in the cattails and if the, the mallards aren't flying, we'll pick up and we'll go set up a blue bill spread on a point. So it's, I moved to South Dakota uh, 2002 or three, purely because at the time, the non-resident lottery, you weren't always guaranteed. And so the first year I, I lived out of state, I got the lottery. The second year I didn't. And I said, to hell with that, I'm moving to South Dakota. And, and I've been here ever since. So I, I moved here for the duck hunting and, and I'll never leave probably because of the duck hunting. So it's I'm spoiled. Uh, I live where I would vacation you know, as far as duck hunting is concerned. South Dakota is awesome. I've had many a good days drawing my non-residence tag there. <clears throat> it's Friday night. It's not duck season. You don't have to get up early in the morning. You're having a barbecue, a couple buddies, their wives or fiancés or girlfriends. Your kids are with you. What's in your cup on a summer night with a nice barbecue going on? And what's on the grill? Uh, old fashioned. And then we've been doing a lot of briskets this summer, so it's been an Ooh, all nice. it's been an all day smoke session with the brisket. Otherwise, otherwise fillets. I'm a big fillet on the grill guy. So Saturday is going to be briskets on an all day to where you can watch the brisket, and then Friday night's going to be fillets. <clears throat> COVID's over. Concert season's back in. Joe gets to take his wife. It's a mom. It's a mom and dad date night. Who is going to be on stage playing for that first concert after COVID? Hmm. I don't know. I, 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 we went to Garth last year. I haven't been to a concert in years. Um, we did have tickets this, I think, in September to, to Matchbox 20, going a little old school for my wife. Oh, they're awesome. Um, I don't know. I, it, it's, uh, I guess it would depend on who's in town. All right, last one. Same kind of question, but sporting event. You can go to the Indy 500. You, the, you've been to the Kentucky Derby, uh, NCAA Finals, Basketball, Super Bowl, World Series, Wimbledon. What is Joe Spoo? Are you an athletic guy at all? You were a marathon runner, so would it be the Olympic trials for running with, with Mr. Bobby McGee, one of the greatest running coaches of all time, who I'm writing an ebook with right now? Um, who, who, who do you, what event do you go watch? So uh, back in the day, I was a big team sport guy. I think I, I, I'm not as much, I don't watch a lot of team sports anymore. I, you know, I follow who's where. Um, I think if I had that one bucket list sporting event to go watch, and it, this will sound corny, but uh, Hawaii Ironman finishing, some of the stories that come out of that televised, like I think people gutting that out and the, some of the challenges that they overcome to, to do some of those big endurance events, uh, back in the day before 
the doping world, the Tour de France would have been my answer. Uh, just some of those big epic things that people physically are able to do are the things that I like. I like that. Any closing words, Mr. Joe Spoo? Do you have any advice? Do you have anything to say about Yukonuba? Any closing words for the podcast? No, I think the big thing is know your dog. If, you know, feed, feed a good food, feed to your dog, fluctuate the amounts based on activity. And, you know, as we're getting into hunting season, know your dog. And so get your hands on your dog, you know, identify an injury before it becomes a problem. Um, as we get into these early seasons, just be conscious of heat stroke. Every year we needlessly lose dogs to heat stroke and it's a preventable problem. And so recognize when your dog's getting into trouble, trouble, shut them down and get them cooled down. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Joe Spoo. Um, we will do this again. I truly appreciate your time, buddy. Likewise. Thank you. Have a great season. You as well. Enjoy that old fashioned. You need to maybe text me that recipe. I had someone give me a premixer. That's the no muddling sugars anymore. No measuring nothing. Th- you use are you using bitters? Are there bitters in an old fashioned? It is. It's a product called Bitter Milk. That it has everything mixed. It's it's basically a tablespoon of that and four of bourbon, and it's just legit. Per- it's oh legit. nice. It's called bit. What's it called? Bitter Milk. Yeah, it's that's the old fashioned setup. All right, I'm gonna I'll text you and I'll uh, I'll stay in touch with you out throughout the season. Perfect. <clears throat> that's Joe Spoo, Ukanuba Duck Dogs podcast, fueled by the one and only Ukanuba. Please continue to support the sponsors and products that support us here at all of our brands, our TV shows, our podcasts. We'll be back at you with another episode next week of Ukanuba's Duck Dog podcast here at the Foul Life. Tom, hit that button. This is the Rock Band 2AM Logic. The song is called My Foul Life. Thank you all very much. Yeah.